welcome to BioChats, a podcast by Apple and Technology. My name is Ken Lung, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. I'm speaking today to my former classmate and friend, Dr. Brooke Sylvester, a cancer biologist who is a medical affairs specialist within the pharmaceutical industry. She happened to be a year ahead of me at the University of Chicago's cancer biology program, and Brooke was happy to share her research and experiences with our applicant audience today. Brooke's opinions are her own and do not reflect those of any company. Today, our career paths, uh, things that we can do to improve accessibility to science, inclusivity, and uh, basically things that we can do with a PhD and how we can improve both science accessibility and the PhD experience. So, hello, Brooke. I have not seen you in 10 years. You literally look the same, and it's absolutely a thrill to see you again. Hi, Ken. It's great to see you. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm excited to have this conversation and discussion with you. Absolutely. I guess, first off, we can talk about our career paths. As you know, I came in the year after you. We didn't always hang out, but uh, I always, you know, felt like I could talk to you. Uh, you were a very friendly, accessible person. Uh, Chica, who was in my year uh, after a PhD, she was an MD, but we, we would come and, you know, talk in seminars, postdoc socials, and I always felt like I respected your knowledge. I respected what you did in Fumi's lab, and I cannot, for the life of me, pronounce her full name. I just know it's Fumi. So I'll let you take over. Sure. So yes, I was a year heading in the cancer biology program at University of Chicago. I did end up joining Fumi Olapati's lab and she's a breast cancer um, and cancer geneticist expert who was very much focused at that time and still today on the genetics of breast cancer in particular with women of African ancestry. And so that was something that was very appealing to me. I was in particular um, interested in that time at cancer health disparities and, you know, what was kind of driving or what were the various factors that were driving cancer health disparities. And so because she was doing that type of research, I did join her lab. Um, and as you mentioned, Chica, um, who was the same uh, class as you, joined her lab the following year. And so um, we both did our PhDs in uh, Fumi's lab. That's great. I joined Richard Jones's lab. We did some systems biology. And basically, after I left PhD, my, my committee like were very enamored by the fact that I'm a good communicator, I'm a good educator. So I actually taught in inner city Chicago for about five years. I taught a lot of underserved minorities, mostly African-American, African and Latino and Latino kids. And it was a really eye-opening experience because I didn't do a traditional postdoc. I just wanted to try to help the world in my own little way. And I think generally you do as well. So before we go too far, I was wondering, like, what you did in your own postdoc before it led to your own role, and then we can talk a little bit more about uh, inclusivity afterwards. Sure. So it's funny because I actually wasn't planning on doing a postdoc. 
I was exploring other kind of career options. I would say probably after beginning our fourth year, um, around our fourth year of grad school, I started looking at, as referred to, post-academic options. And then my last year of my PhD, I actually came around and decided that I was not disinterested in academia. And as you know, and we can talk about it a little bit more, there is kind of this you know, kind of defined track that you do have to take if you're going to have an academic career. So, and it's not necessarily the case with other career options. So my thinking was, okay, I think I'm still interested in academia. I enjoy research. Let me stay on this track. And then if I change my mind later, that will be fine. But at least I won't eliminate myself from the academic track before I've fully considered the downstream career options. So very late in my (laughs) PhD, I uh, started applying to postdoc positions at various places. And my kind of strategy was, you know, not just kind of a broad application, which I think probably was a little more recommended, but, you know, for the reasons I just mentioned, I wanted to make sure I was in a postdoc with, you know, a great advisor and doing great research projects that I was really engaged, excited, and interested in. And so I very selectively looked at, you know, institutions and principal investigators that were doing the type of work that I wanted to do. And so I ended up joining uh, David Solid's lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And I was really attracted to the type of research that he was doing. At that time, he was really looking at this question around extraordinary responders. And so, you know, when you think about clinical drug development and clinical trials, drugs are tested in clinical trials and they either move forward in clinical development because they succeed in trials or they fail in trials. And He was actually looking at trials that failed, but very often you still have one or two or a handful of patients that respond to that therapy. And so looking at, you know, from a genetic perspective, why were those patients responding? And I just thought that was a really cool kind of personalized therapeutic research question. And so I ended up joining his lab. And then I also, as a part of working on that research question, was able to continue doing some of the colorectal cancer research that I had started in graduate school, um, looking at molecular progression of colon cancer and rectal cancer, um, working with a pathologist at Sloan Kettering and also some um, surgeons to study samples um, in colorectal cancer. So I was actually working on various projects, which was very interesting. And then I also was able to participate in a global health project collaborating with uh, surgeons and uh, oncologists in Nigeria. And so that was a continuation of the type of work I was introduced to in Fumi's lab, and I was able to carry forward in um, clinical research once I joined Sloan Kettering. So a lot of different research projects that I was working on and and really excited and intrigued by for um, four years. Awesome. So you probably did a lot of like was mostly the GWAS, the Genome Wide Association Studies. You probably did a lot of that as well, right? Uh, or Actually, was it like slightly different? 
Yeah, it was a little different. So we definitely um, collaborated with people who were doing GWAS studies, especially in my graduate training. By the time I was in my postdoc, we were actually doing a lot of tumor sequencing. So, you know, this was really around the time of precision medicine and the idea behind precision medicine and just really looking at what's happening from a genetic perspective in individual patient tumors and trying to understand, you know, which people are more likely to respond to specific types of targeted therapies. And now when we think about immunotherapies and really looking at just mass DNA sequencing of tumors to identify what are those driver mutations that are in those tumors, and then what are the types of targeted or immunotherapies that patients are more likely to respond to. So it was a lot more tumor sequencing. You know, just with the technology that was developing at that time, you were really seeing more mass tumor sequencing that was um, being done faster Obviously, it was starting to become cheaper, so you were able to actually sequence more samples. So um, looking at it from, you know, some of the statistical studies that were would need to be conducted to really look at this data on a larger scale, you really wanted to do as many tumors, look at as many tumors as possible. So there was this time where we were just really scaling up the analyses of tumor sequencing across hundreds and thousands of patient tumors that we were getting access to through uh, patients that were coming and um, being clinically treated at Sloan Kettering Hospital. So it was really exciting times and really, you know, as I'm sure you talk about pretty often just with the technology and the advancements that are coming, taking advantage of the resources that were available at the time to ask really um, important clinical research questions. Yeah, I think uh, by the time we graduated, next-gen sequencing was just starting to gain steam. Like you hear, Affymetrics and Illumina just become household names, and everybody's obviously still using Illumina platforms. I personally never did it, but I know of them because of how involved in research a lot of these platforms are nowadays. And it's, it's kind of exciting to find somebody who knows far more about this than I do, like I guess I should tell the audience that you are much <laughs> more accomplished scientist than I will probably ever be. And like I was just through like your publications list is like extremely impressive. And I, you don't need me to be, but I'm, I'm really proud of you. Thanks, Ken. Yeah. Although I feel like we're all accomplished because, you know, you know, as we can talk about, there's a lot of career options that are available after getting a PhD. And I think there's various avenues that we can travel in from a career perspective to go in and make an impact. And so I see this as all very accomplished. I think we were all received really good training and we were, be, we were able to take our training and our interests and kind of merge that and go in areas where we all felt like we could make an impact. So I would congratulate you all. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, <laughs> a lot of the folks who uh, trained us, uh, not just in the lab, but also in our thesis committees and in the classroom, they were excellent educators. I think they really emphasized the whole purpose of the case is not to just teach you science, but to teach you how to think, how to solve problems. And I think that could be applied to a number of uh, different things. Uh, I know, for example, Sapna, who I think she was the year after me or two years after, 
She came into science policy. What about your year? What about your classmates before we talk about other guys? Yes, and I follow Safna on LinkedIn, so it's really been interesting to watch her career um, progressing in government. It was actually something that I had also kind of considered, too. I think we have, you know, when I think about some of my classmates, there were a handful of people that kind of went the, what would have been considered the traditional path of staying in academia, really developing kind of that academic track, be it tenure track or not tenure track career. But surprisingly, and I think this is where we're seeing a lot of change from a generational perspective, that was the minority, I would say, of um, either my classmates or just kind of my cohort that kind of my peers during the same time period that I was in training. Um, It was actually a minority. So really, literally only maybe a handful of people that I can think of that are still in academia today. There were definitely some of our peers who went into uh, clinical training. So as you mentioned, medical school, either during, so they were doing MD, PhDs, or went to medical school after getting a PhD. So there are some peers that we have that are, um, and specifically who were in the cancer biology program that are now clinicians and practicing in oncology or hematology or radiation oncology. Primarily, um, I think there may be um, a couple of people in some other specialties also. I know that also I've had a couple of other friends during that time period who went into different avenues of government. So either NIH or, for instance, NSF National Science Foundation or who work for the FDA. So what would be considered maybe more kind of administrative related careers, but still close to science, so either in science funding or in program development. Similarly, I've had some peers who have gone into academic administrative roles. So they're in the academic world, but they're not doing research, but they're doing administrative work. So when we think about all the great people that supported us while we were in grad school as far as our program administrators and and um, other staff, or thinking about even on a higher kind of academic governing level, people in different types of administrative positions across the university system. There are definitely some people that I know that are working in that area. Obviously, as, you, as you've attested to teaching, so I have some friends who are teaching either um, at the uh, college or university level or, you know, in high school levels or elementary school levels either focus on science or other kind of related uh, topics. Think about, you know, medical communications and other types of, for instance, science writing careers. And then I think uh, something, uh, someone else actually went into tech transfer. So that's, I think, another interesting field that I've uh, seen a couple of people go into following a PhD. So I think it's important just for people to know that there's a lot of um, options now And uh, kind of the traditional route has almost, in my experience, become the non-traditional route in the sense of many more people um, considering career options post-academia. Yeah, of our classmates in my year, I think only Marion actually became a professor. I I actually don't recall. I think she's at Mayo uh, as an assistant professor in, in cancer biology, and that's really cool for her. Uh, the rest, I think Nan's just doing like 
medical oncology fellowship at Wisconsin. Uh, I actually haven't mm-hmm. talked to them in a very long time because we've all been busy. And honestly, this is like a really good excuse for me to catch up with my friends. But it's wonderful to see, like, not everybody has to be a professor. Not everybody has to go to the postdoc route. Like, you basically have to do what's best for you. Maybe one of the things that we can talk about is like the kind of attitude and support systems that you need in order to persist in the Ph.D. so that uh, you're slogging through four, five, six, maybe more years of experiments, 95 percent of them that don't work. You feel terrible about yourself, but those five percent of the successes, you just like, yes, yes, I did something really awesome. And now I actually have a, a figure that I can include in my my publication that I can ultimately use to drive my dissertation. Just things I'm thinking of include, you know, just support from your peers, networking with the right people, not just in your thesis committee. My friend Ron, who was in the same lab, he sat himself next to the really smart people, the smart postdocs in Kevin White's lab. He absorbed a lot of knowledge from that, and from by osmosis, I was able to absorb some from him. So I think it does help to surround yourself with the right people. But I thought maybe we can discuss things, strategies that, you know, a lot of our audience are early career researchers or early career graduates, and they might find this useful. Definitely. So, you know, to your point, I really see PhD training as an apprenticeship. We kind of don't talk about that a lot, but it's a modern day apprenticeship. So, you know, you cannot go through a PhD program alone, you know, or just only dependent upon your advisor. So, you know, similar to you, I was just randomly, I happened to be in the the lab that I did my graduate training in had a lot of senior members in the lab. So unlike some labs that you kind of heavier on graduate student or postdocs in the lab, my lab actually skewed differently in that there were a lot of, you know, senior research associates, assistant professors in the lab. That was something that I was able to fully take advantage of and just learn so much about science and being a scientist and understanding what my role was and how to contribute to science. So there's a lot of patience needed and a lot of support needed. So, you know, completely leaning in and and getting those networks in place and not even just in the professional setting, but to your point, you're in school for a long time. (laughs) there's going to be a lot of tough days. So even having a personal support system, and it doesn't have to be, you know, people who've been in PhD programs or understand PhD programs. It just really needs to be people that, you know, understand you and support you. So that was something that I very much leaned on um, my friendships and my family support during my graduate years. But, you know, I think also a part of that, Um, which we're kind of indirectly talking about, but um, is mentorship. And, you know, even in selecting a lab, it's something that we think about. But I think also even in having an advisor and in having a thesis committee, you know, I took advantage of other um, faculty at University of Chicago, along with other institutions that I just kind of happened to meet during my training to serve as mentors. And I think it's something that cannot be talked about enough or overstated enough because I think there needs to be an understanding as 
a mentee kind of what your role is. And so it's very often the case where you'll be exposed to people in your career that have a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience to offer you. And, you know, some of those people may reach out to you directly, but very often it's really up to you to extend yourself to that person and say, hey, you're doing similar type of research that I'm interested in, or you have a position that I want to aspire to one day. How did you get there? Would you be willing to spend time with me, you know, quarterly or monthly to be my mentor. I think people need to directly ask for mentorship and not just assume it or think that if it hasn't been brought up, that it's not an option. You know, we talked about life has just become really busy. And I think as you get older, you know, everyone just kind of has their responsibilities, work and home, and it just may not naturally occur to you to reach out to someone. But if someone reaches out to you and asks for specific help or guidance, then, you know, we always try and make ourselves available for those types of requests. That's what I found. That's what I do. That's what I've seen my colleagues do. You know, I think mentorship is really, really key and in um, identifying the right people to serve as mentors in your life. And, you know, it'll change over time. You know, you'll have different mentors in grad school potentially than you have in your postdoc or, you know, as your career progresses. And that's fine. And that's just probably how career process should work as you're progressing. Um, You'll need exposure to different people. But I I would say that is definitely a key area of of development that we all need and we should access and utilize. Like, it's amazing how I looked up to certain, I wouldn't say older, but you guys were here first. Uh, So, Brooke, sometimes I would talk to you. I talked to Jennifer Taylor, now Veneris, who... Uh, she got married and I think she had a couple of babies after graduate school, but she was always wonderful to talk to about just like how to navigate through thinking about a topic or just, you know, my own relationship with my boss and just trying to mm-hmm. make sure I had enough of balance and boundaries, work-life balance. And I, this is one of the things that needs to change about the PhD is that you're not while it is an apprenticeship and while it is important for you to work towards a goal, you can't work yourself to exhaustion and depression either. So it's important to take care of yourself first. We are people of color. You're African-American. I'm Chinese-American. We have probably way different experiences, but you talk about how you felt supported as a minority while you were in uh, graduate school or even undergrad because I imagine uh, you went to an HBCU, Howard. You worked with a minority professor who is, you know, by all rights, a rock star. So I think you had probably one of the most ideal experiences possible. But maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So I think, you know, having a career in a STEM field and, you know, let alone in cancer biophysity, you're not going to be in a diverse from an ethnic and racial standpoint. Just the reality of our current times and just historically who's had access to those, you know, that, that type of education and training. I think we, you know, as someone underrepresented in STEM, I think it's something that, you know, you think about immediately and not even intentionally. You know, it's just something that's very apparent to you when you walk into these rooms, Right. I developed a love for science when I was young. 
before I even knew what that meant and what that looked like. And so for me, it was good to kind of have that passion already instilled with me before I got to an age where, you know, I kind of had a better understanding of demographically what that would look like for my career. So, yeah, as you mentioned, I did go to uh, an HBCU for undergrad. I went to Howard University. And I think that, you know, that's obviously an option for many people, not necessarily, you know, everyone wants to go that option. But I would say that the advantage that it gave to me was in knowing that even though I was going to potentially walk into these rooms where I was either the only African-American or even, you know, one of a few women that I trained with an entire class of African-Americans in biology. You know, as a biology major, every single biology major in my program was African-American. So seeing um, African-Americans in STEM was not a shock to me, or it wasn't foreign to me, or unrealistic to me. You know, most of my professors were African-Americans, and these were established researchers and educators and scientists for decades upon their own. And so that just reinforced the idea that this isn't something that's exceptional. This is something that I can do. This is uh, a career choice that I can make. It gave me the confidence to make, to feel comfortable in the decisions that I made in my career. And so, you know, when you talk about transitioning to graduate school and, you know, at that point, you're going to be, you know, your demographic and ethnic differences are going to be on display. You know, that's just where the reality kind of clicks. I think that there were maybe a handful of experiences that I had that were, um, you know, a little discouraging, but never to the point where I didn't want to finish my degree or not be in science. And I think, you know, just not being deterred by those couple or handful of instances or being the only one in the room just really came from a place of, you know, going to an HBCU and seeing that every day for four years. You know, one of the key things um, in being underrepresented in science is, you know, is to get exposure. You know, that's kind of the immediate thing that I think is important for young people and people as they progress through their careers and in the direction that they want to go is just to really have exposure to just the diversity that does actually exist, even if it's not in large numbers. And just the opportunities that are available to people who take the route of a PhD, I think that can bring a lot of awareness and downstream lead to more interest in people going into STEM careers. Yeah, I appreciate your viewpoints there. Like, I think it, it wasn't readily apparent to me because I guess I was younger and more naive. But as a Chinese American, we are minorities, but for whatever reason, we're not underrepresented because I think stereotypically they kind of all expect us to be doctors or lawyers or like, you know, build rocket ships or whatever, you know. But I do remember uh, my one of my best friends is black. He's actually uh, Afro-Caribbean from St. Lucia and Jamaica. The first 
time I ever walked into a lab at Berkeley, the graduate student who trained me was black, and he happened to be the only black graduate student in his entering class. I can't even tell you if there's another one. And that's what's really sad is like he taught me PCR. He taught me how to like do research. He taught me how to use PubMed. He taught me so many things. He was so engaging and personable and just a wonderful person. I wish the best for him because I lost touch with him many years ago. But you, you kind of notice that there aren't a lot of black people in the sciences. And that was something that I was hoping you know, as an educator, when I started teaching at, you know, Chicago public schools, I would try to overcome these deficits because when these kids uh, come into my classroom, like they're based basically in the honors cohort of their class, but they're so deficient in the basic math and science skills that it took me a long time to catch them up to speed. And it was just wonderful when they come back from their first year of college and they say, like, you taught me so much in chemistry, so much more than my professor that I I felt good about it. I felt that they derived a lot of benefit from it. Later on, when I used, are you still on the lab share uh, listserv? You, you remember lab share? Oh, like I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I do remember that. I'm not still on it, but I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I stay on it every now and then just to see who's giving away mice and who's doing what. But when I was a teacher, I was still on it. And I did an APBs basically saying, I'm a Chicago area teacher. You go to the University of Chicago. I'm basically taking all your old old gloves, your old pipette tips, anything that you want to uh, donate. And so Doug Bishop, you, you remember Doug Bishop? Yeah, uh, I yeah, so he, he does yeast research, and he reached out to me and was, just gave me all kinds of resources, and including taking one of my most gifted students into his lab for wow. summer. And we were just trying to make sure he, he got boosted before he went to, I believe it was Oberlin in Ohio, and uh, he wanted to be pre-med and everything, did a great job. But, you know, we were both very cognizant of the fact that he was deficient in a lot of the understanding of the the science behind what he was doing. Like he did an awesome job. He was very coachable, but there there was still this gap that we definitely need to overcome. So I think the next part of our conversation might be like, how do we overcome this gap? How do we make sure that these kids, like the kids that I would uh, write up so that they could get into uh, prestigious colleges and get those opportunities to be able to get summer opportunities to be able to actually work in a lab for a summer. What what else can we do to try to shrink that gap, make sure there's more representation in our sciences? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously that's a huge question, right? And there's, you know, a lot of societal factors that play into that. But I think one thing that is important to talk about, and you basically demonstrated that, was being an advocate. There's a lot of things that you can, you know, as an underrepresented person in science, you can come across as far as, like, things that you need to do. But one thing that I will comment on is what can everyone else do? What can communities do? What can educators do? You know, what can people with access do? And what you can do is advocate for people. So, you know, in working in these environments and in training in these environments, you know, we become exposed to people who express to us that they're interested in science, express to 
left that, they either want to go to med school or want to go to grad school. You know, being on, I remember being in grad school and during my postdoc time, that was just kind of like the number one thing that people asked me, students who were younger would ask me about, you know, I'm thinking about going to grad school. I'm thinking about going to med school. What's the difference? What are things I should think about? How should I, how should I prepare? And so, you know, you're generally getting some information from people that they're expressing an interest. And I think what we can do is function as advocates for those people. And so once that information comes to you, you know, take an initiative and expose that individual or advocate on behalf of that individual to get certain opportunities. And so, you know, there are people who are interested in science. They have all the tools. They have the intelligence. They, they, they perform well. They'll do well in that type of environment, but they just need someone to advocate for them because maybe there's, you know, a perception that, oh, well, you went to this undergrad instead of this undergrad. And I'm, you know, I'm not as exposed to people that come from the school that you went to. So I don't know how likely they are to be, you know, successful in a PhD program. I think we need to rethink people who are, you know, eligible for PhD programs in the sense that there's kind of been this very directed pipeline and assumption that only if you went to this type of school will you succeed in a PhD program. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that there are going to be other students who have a strong interest, they have a strong work ethic, but maybe they lack experience or kind of a knowledge base and a core component that is important to applying to a PhD program or a medical school then what are the things that can be done to give that person that leg up, to give them that experience or that thing that they need? So when I think back to my own training, when I was in undergrad, at that time, I wanted to go to medical school. I was pre-med. And my whole reason behind wanting to go to medical school was I thought that was the only option for people who were interested in science. And so, you know, I had identified at a young age that I was interested in science and I was interested in medicine, but I didn't quite have the exposure as far as people in science and the different careers that they can take on, you know, as far as the diversity around that. I, I didn't know a lot of those people, right? So I just, you know, if you're interested in science, you become a doctor. That's what I thought. And, and when I refer to doctor, I mean a clinician. And I remember getting to undergrad and meeting um, one of the women that was in my class. And, you know, 99% of us pre-med majors were planning to go to medical school. And she was, you know, one of the small percentage of people who was intent on going to grad school and getting a PhD. And I just thought that was really interesting because I had never even thought about getting a PhD. I hadn't met someone or been exposed to someone directly who had a PhD in some type of um, biological or physical science. And so that was the first time of just even having awareness of it. I wasn't interested in that time, but I had awareness of it. A few years later, I graduate from college. I decide to take gap years or whatever, but I just back then we just took time off or whatever before um, going to, you know, professional school or grad school or whatever your next choice was. 
And so I took, I ended up taking three years off and I was taking an uh, impact prep class and just, you know, just through a random conversation with a friend, we started talking about PhD programs. And for the first time, I actually started thinking, oh, would I want to do a PhD program? Because I hadn't, you know, even though I was aware of it at that point, I hadn't actually considered that as an option for me. And so, you know, I started looking at biology-related programs. And in particular, I was actually new at that point. I was interested in cancer. I was planning to go to medical school and become an oncologist. And, you know, to even know that there are cancer biology programs. I didn't know there were cancer biology programs. And, you know, honestly, that was still a somewhat relatively new thing. When we started grad school, there were only, you know, a handful of cancer biology programs in this entire country. That was something that I came to learn would be an option for me. And when I applied to grad school and started talking to people, I learned that most people applying to grad school had research experience. I hadn't done research. (laughs) You know, I had taken, obviously, all of the, you know, pre-med coursework and kind of all the other things that are requirements, but I hadn't done extensive lab research outside of just kind of what was mandatory for our coursework. And so, you know, that was an area that you could say that I was lacking in. And when I applied to grad school and was going on interviews, every single applicant that I was meeting had done research, uh, had research experience. And so that was an area where I felt like I was severely lacking. Now, does that mean I shouldn't have had an opportunity to be in a PhD program? You know, there was you know, a conversation that I had when I was interviewing at University of Chicago where I just said, like, hey, I understand this is something that I'm lacking going into this. And I had a very direct conversation with them and saying, you know, is there something that I can do to demonstrate my commitment and my interest in research or, you know, my ability to take this on? And so something that I ended up doing was I did actually a rotation prior to starting grad school at the University of Chicago. So whereas most people come and start, you know, you see it's on a quarter system, most people come and start in September. I actually came in June of that year and did my first rotation prior to CAP classes starting. And it was kind of, um, you know, a period to see. Yeah, Yeah, it was a period to see, like, you know, to get exposure. Oh, you did too. Great. Yeah, what was I your worked reason for lab and yeah, for a little bit and decided that I didn't uh, didn't like fruit flies. So I ended up working with uh, Anning and uh, I decided that I didn't want to work like 14 hours a day. <laughs> so that, that those were good experiences for me. Yeah, and I felt like that was an example of you know in that instance I advocated for myself, but that could be something someone else can do. You know, you don't have to assume that because someone doesn't have this specific thing that people have either traditionally had or that everyone else has that they can't still succeed. And so, you know, those are the areas where I think we need to advocate for ourselves when we're underrepresented in um, specific rooms and areas. And also other people can serve as advocates to increase the number of people who get access and exposure and opportunities in science. Absolutely. And it it just comes back to opportunity again, because we know that everybody has a certain level of intelligence. They have potential. They 
have to drive. They just need the impetus and the opportunity, someone to basically coach them and help them understand how was, was the best way for me to get into the door. Because once you get into the door, anything is possible. But that that's the problem. Like the door is shut for a lot of minorities, and that's really unfortunate. I still have my cell, cell subscription from when I was a graduate student, like since forever. <laughs> and over the past few years, I've been noticing more and more op-eds before you even get to the preview section. Like they'll talk about, okay, there's not enough funding being given to women or to a specific uh, group of minorities or to Asian Americans, even researchers that are supposed to be getting NIH funding. A lot of it is going towards what you would consider the traditional demographic of researchers. And that's kind of unfair. There are also articles about how there is now more outreach towards minorities and LGBTQ. It, it's like that's great that, that there's, you know, this kind of exposure now that people are more outspoken about it. But is there enough progress, in your opinion, that will allow these people to take advantage of the opportunities that they deserve? You know, I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work to be done in this area. So, you know, in reference to, you know, what you're mentioning this has been a very recent effort, and, you know, I know the NIH has definitely been um, encouraging, supporting through funding um, underrepresented minorities in science for at least a couple of decades, I want to say. But, you know, when we look overall, the needle is moving, but it's not moving the same for everyone, and it's not moving, I would say, fast enough. So, you know, when I think about where you have really seen some gains are, for instance, you're seeing more women in science, right? So that's something that we've seen change over the last couple of decades. You know, when I entered into grad school, my cancer biology class, it was four of us and all women. And I just remember the professors just being like wowed by the fact that like there was a class of all women, you know, for this PhD program. That was just unheard of, even though it was four of us, but still, right? Like that was just unheard of. And just kind of hearing the conversations of some of um, our female faculty members just talking about their experiences during training and just, you know, some of the, you know, just conversations and questions that they were asked or assumptions that were made about them because they were women that, nowadays would be considered completely inappropriate or whatever. So that's where there's an area. I think if you look around anyone who's in science and training, you know, they've seen there's a lot more women. And I think just like that happened for women, I think we need to see that with other demographics that are underrepresented. Now, where I will say we haven't had even as much progress when you look at um, even with more women in science is well, you clearly see a place where that changes, right? You see a lot of women in training, see a lot of women postdocs, but then you start to see the numbers drop, right? And then when you look at other underrepresented minorities, the numbers are even smaller. And what that says to us is that once you're getting beyond a certain level, there's an attrition happening, and why is that happening? And this is not a novel conversation. There are already conversations around this being had. 
And I think, one, we need to continue to have conversations around attrition with women and, you know, even the higher amount of attrition that you see, for instance, with African-Americans as you uh, progress up the career ladder in science and other, you know, uh, demographics. But then there needs to be very active measures taken. And so, you know, one thing I think about, especially now, is what happened during the pandemic, right, with COVID. Science was, I mean, it was, as a scientist, you know, aside from the obviously detrimental impact that this disease has had on the global community and the amount of death and loss that has occurred, it's really exciting to see science on a everyday, you know, the fact that it was a part of news every day. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone had an opinion, although a lot of people didn't have accurate opinions, but everyone had an opinion. And you've just never seen something like that happen in the area of science. So for me as a scientist, it was really exciting to just be able to talk about science every day and really for a lot of people to understand the role of science in society. You know, I think a lot of people think science is this irrelevant, you know, text, old textbook that's sitting around that doesn't matter to the world. It doesn't really mean anything to everyday life. And what we saw was the realization of how important science is in everyday life, how important it is in society. And, you know, this is something that I understood from a very young age, which why I was interested in science, but that's not everyone's experience. And so, you know, when we look at what happened, because of the amount of detriment and the death toll that happened, literally you saw the entire global community come together, pool resources, and move forward to try and develop this vaccine. You know, and obviously we've had multiple vaccines and there's more work to be done. Obviously the pandemic is not over. But, you know, when have you seen, like, that level of a scaled effort happen to move science forward? And so it's a demonstration of when everyone's on the same page about something, and when you put resources behind it, you can solve problems. And that's what I think needs to be done in this area where, you know, there's been discussion about it. We've identified problems. But now it's time to put a full effort into addressing the solutions behind it and really prioritize it. So, you know, for someone like me who works in the world of pharmaceutical companies and in drug development, clinical trials, we know that minorities are underrepresented in clinical trials. Racial and ethnic minorities are underrepresented in clinical trials in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. Do we make that a part of the FDA approval process in the U.S. that you have proper representation of racial and ethnic demographics in trials with illnesses that are impacting these individuals? You know, do we hold higher bar and requirements around how we move things forward and how we fund projects to really help address this? to, To also better educate through, basically, you need representation. So I feel like your community is more likely to trust someone who looks like you. And so if we can get more 
to explain the research better, then there's less mistrust because they know that historically there has been some mistrust with medical immunity, and that might be like an obstacle. And that's unfortunate because, you know, a lot of us are really just trying to help, but we also understand that aspect of that, that obstacle against getting more folks to buy in to donate their samples or their fluids and and allow a more inclusive. We need more sample. We need like 10 to 15 percent, at least 10 to 50 percent of your sample size should be from those samples. So it, it just kind of makes sense from even a rudimentary statistical point of view. Do what you said. Exactly. I agree. And we actually saw that, too, with the pandemic, right, where there was a level of distrust specifically in the African-American community with some people wanting to take the vaccine. And what you actually saw happen is when communities, Black communities, were given the resources and proactively went out and educated their communities and gave them access to getting the vaccine, you actually saw the numbers reach parity, right, with African-Americans getting vaccinated in this country. So I think that's a great point about representation and seeing people that you trust give you information and provide you with resources. Yeah, and I think in terms of representation as well to basically recruit more young African-American STEM fields, uh, that's what I was basically trying to do because I was thinking of, okay, there are ways that, like I can show them pictures of Neil deGrasse Tyson or George Washington Carver, but those are, you know, just the most famous ones. What about run-of-the-mill uh, researchers, everyday researchers that they might not understand. So I basically, like the second time I interviewed for graduate school, the first time I went to Duke, and then I took like a few years off because I was like, uh, do I really want to do this? And then I decided, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I do like science, and it seems like one of the few things I'm actually good at, so I might as well do it, right? So the second time that I interviewed uh, Tracy Johnson, do you know her? She's a Howard Hughes medical Institute researcher at UC San Diego who happens to be black and she does a really cool research on basically RNA regulation and so didn't keep in touch for a long time but when I started teaching I basically reached out to her and said I need more representation to show my kids who are primarily African-American that this is a possibility can I post your picture she was really wonderful and receptive about it one of the people who inter- interviewed me when I was a postdoc, or I wasn't a postdoc, I was trying to figure out whether I should be a postdoc. He actually happened to be an African-American as well, working on pancreatic cancer. And so I asked him to do the same, and he was really cool on it and introduced me to a vast community. Like when we were at the University of Chicago, I think it was off the top of my head, it was Fumi and Rick Kittles, and that was about it for African-American researchers. And that's from a numbers point of view, that's not enough. And I feel like in order to help kids understand that they can do it, they need to see examples and to be able to persist that because you were talking about attrition. Like, I think one of the problems is that, like, we can get black kids into college, but can we get them to stay there without crippling uh, student loans? Can we get them to stay there without them feeling basically under-supported, uh, under-resourced, they either don't have the money or the uh, tutoring in order to continue uh, within their college. And so they have to drop out. Like if we can reduce that amount of attrition, then we have a numbers game going for these underserved communities so that they are no longer 
And that was what I was trying to work at. You know, uh, unfortunately, education in this country isn't what we would like it to be. But I think if we have like a critical mass of people to are invested in certain communities, invested in opportunity for everybody, that could be something I, I hope it, it will have an impact, but I, I honestly don't know how much work still needs to be done. I just know that there's a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, I also like the idea of partnerships, right? Like I just think about, for instance, um, you know, with development, you see um, a lot of partnerships between academia and pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies that have really kind of been moving technology forward in the sciences, has been moving drug development forward um, in medicine. And so it would be great to see, you know, more large-scale organized partnerships. There's clearly companies that have resources. There's clearly institutions that have resources. So let's match those those institutions, those companies with universities, with high schools, with communities to say, hey, I'm going to adopt this school and I'm going to invest resources in this pipeline to produce more minorities in science. I don't see how it can't be an overall benefit to our society, to our country, to the global scientific community to have more representation and to even have more diversity come out of the type of research that we're doing. Because something else we also know is that, you know, the more diverse representation of people you have in science, the more diversity you get in research questions, the more diversity you get in, um, you know, moving science forward, more ideas, right? Just, you know, more questions, more ways to think about things. And that's the basis of science, right? The having um, a diversity of people and thoughts and, and, and questions to move the field forward. And so, you know, with this type of investment, I don't see uh, a way that we can go wrong. I only see this as a benefit to our society. And speaking of representation, you are, of course, really entrenched now in the field of oncology and pharmaceuticals. Uh, You were a medical liaison of some sort, or uh, how would you describe your current role that you are transitioning to? Yeah, so I've been working in medical affairs now for almost a year and a half. And so um, I previously worked for a a large multinational company with their oncology division on an immunotherapy, a PD-1 inhibitor. And so now I'm transitioning to a new company, which is a uh, biotechnology company, still focused on oncology and now moving over to the targeted therapy world, which I'm really excited about since that was really the basis for my training. So I will be working on two uh, new drugs, which are both uh, targeted therapies that work um, to inhibit cell proliferation, differentiation, and signaling pathways that we know play a role in the development of cancer and in the progression of cancer, specifically focusing on non-small cell lung cancer. So medical affairs is something that I kind of came to within uh, the last couple of years where I feel like it's it's a nice way to utilize my skill set, a combination of my training and the work experience that I have. Um, I get to uh, collaborate with 
a cross-functional team across the company. So working with um, people in clinical development and research and development, working with uh, people who focus on health economics and outcomes research. It's really just a, uh, a cross-functional team that comes together. And my specific role is to look at the, uh, the strategy behind the medications that we're developing and to identify what are the best you know, areas to focus these medications on? Where will we see, you know, the kind of best outcomes as far as with cancer, knowing that there's different types of cancers? What are the best populations that are most likely to benefit from these specific types of therapies and development so that we can make the, um, have the most significant impact on health outcomes? So it's a, it's a great role that allows me to liaise with a lot of different people. I work with statisticians. It's kind of like, almost like a mini experience of, of my graduate training where I work with, you know, clinicians, pathologists, uh, statisticians to really look at a large question and we all bring our expertise in to try and address and answer that question. And obviously, to try and improve health outcomes for patients who are diagnosed with cancer. Awesome. Well, with respect to your time, Brooke, I really appreciate you hanging out with us today, uh, discussing all these topics. And best of luck to you in your research and medical liaising. (laughs) Uh, You can find Brooke on LinkedIn. And again, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you, Ken. I had a great time speaking with you and catching up. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lund. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on AppClonal.com. Or you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or to inquire about Apoclonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.